This is TBH. I'm Hannah Nee. I'm a recent graduate from Presentation High School in San Jose and a freshman at the University of Chicago. And I'm Chosong Tenzin, a senior at Oakland Technical High School in Oakland, California. This podcast is made by, about, and for teenagers. And for anybody else who wants to hear what's on our minds. Today's episode is about community and how one high school student found his community through wheelchair basketball. First, some history. This year marks the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. After decades of protests and organizing, George H.W. Bush signed the act into law in 1990. Every man, woman, and child with a disability can now pass through once closed doors into a bright new era of equality independence and freedom. And as I look This act at all banned these discrimination based on disability, and it's meant to stop people with disabilities from being denied access to jobs, schools, or transportation. People with disabilities make up the country's largest minority group. 61 million Americans live with a disability of some kind. And yet, there are still major barriers when it comes to a fundamental right, voting. Our next story, though, is about sports. More specifically, it's about wheelchair basketball. It comes from Avery Dower, a musical theater student at Ruth Asawa School of the Arts in San Francisco. Here's Avery on what made him want to produce a story. I think um, one of the biggest communities that I've had in my life is uh, my participation in basketball. As kids with disabilities and in our normal lives, like at school, we are the minority. We are different than everyone else. But when we are together, we can relate to each other and really feel that sense of community. So for any kid growing up, there's that, you know, saying, you know, find your people or whatever. But, you know, I think especially at the age when you go into middle school, that's really important because you're kind of figuring out who you are. So whether it be, you know, basketball, theater, writing, soccer, sports, whatever, I feel like that has been a thing that's helped me kind of find who I am and accept uh, my differences and what goes on with my body and how I move and see that I can be more than society expects me. I know that got a little deep, but part of community is is people that challenge you and lift you up to be the best you can be. And here's the story. This is a basketball practice. The players are in wheelchairs. In this clip, I'm playing in a wheelchair basketball scrimmage. It's in Berkeley. It's between the Junior Road Warriors, my team, and the adult team, the All-Stars. A player gets the rebound, dribbles through their defenders, and makes a pass, leading to an open shot. I started playing wheelchair basketball 11 years ago when I was six. I joined the Bay Area Outreach and Recreation Program. It's a nonprofit that provides and promotes adaptive sports for people with disabilities like me. Everything from sled hockey to power soccer to wheelchair basketball. I mean, it's, it's just basketball. Lawrence Johnson. 
He's my coach. He goes by Trooper, a name given to him by his father. When you start watching really high-level wheelchair basketball, you can pretty much ignore the chairs and start really seeing basketball. Trooper is one of the most prolific scorers and three-point shooters in wheelchair basketball history. There are a, different, a couple different modifications to the rules. There's no double dribble in wheelchair ball, so you can take the ball, put it on your lap, take two pushes, and then dribble it again. You can you know, take the ball and touch it with both hands, fake a pass, fake a shot, and then dribble it again. He's the only player to make the U.S. national team 15 times, and he's a nine-time gold medalist. In 1992, he played for the U.S. National Paralympic team competing in Barcelona. 3.15 on the clock. Trooper Johnson for three, and it goes down. Trooper Johnson there, number one man. He's a celebrity here in the USA. He's a celebrity in the wheelchair basketball community now, but Trooper discovered the sport during a difficult time in his life. Ever since he was a kid, Trooper loved sports. His dad was in the military and signed him up for sports teams whenever they moved. But during Trooper's senior year of high school, in the early 80s, he didn't play any sports. He began using drugs and drinking. One night he was driving in the mountains outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico. He was drunk. He veered off the road and hit a tree. He got out and tried to move the car. The car started rolling and it rolled over me and dragged me down a hill. And I got trapped underneath the car and it uh, kind of folded me in half backwards and broke my back in two places and then broke a bunch of other stuff. And so it paralyzed me just uh, pretty much at the bottom of my ribs. And um, from that point on, I, I was going to be using a wheelchair. Trooper had never really met anyone who used a wheelchair before his injury. But he did remember once seeing an old woman in a wheelchair in Greece. She was begging for spare change. That was really the one thing that stuck in my head because I didn't know about wheelchair sports I didn't know about anything else but it's like as soon as they told me I was going to be in a wheelchair it was like almost like that that vision was the one thing that was like holy crap you know I'm gonna that's what I'm gonna be that's what my life is gonna be like Trooper says he refused to accept that image and others were also rooting for him to stay in sports one day a physical therapist drove him to the University of New Mexico and she goes I just have to pick something up in here and we go into a gym and there's like you know eight guys playing ball in wheelchairs and I, and I just was, was sitting here going, holy crap, you know, and as soon as I found it, I just got excited that I could, I knew that I belonged there. He still remembers the dimly lit court and trying to take a shot. And it was just like the most humbling thing in the world because, because uh, I was always so used to being able to do anything. Like I was, I was kind of one of the kids that, that could, man, I could pick up any sport. I could do anything. I, I was just like able to do stuff, right? And all of a sudden, you know, you're getting this basketball pass to you and you take a shot and it goes eight feet in the air and you're just like, what the heck was that, right? And and then you, you know, the next shot really didn't go much higher. Like it was great. I fell out of my chair, you know, and knocked somebody over. I mean, it was just like, like I just felt great being on the court. Years after that day, he moved back to the Bay Area for work and found himself back on the basketball court. Just under streetlights, just like shooting hoops at, you know, midnight and two o'clock in the morning. Trooper soon joined a local team through the Bay Area Outreach and Recreation Program. The team was called the Golden State 76ers at the time. Now it's called the Road Warriors. And that was the beginning of his amazing playing career. He played for the NWBA Division I from 1989 to 2004, and he was inducted into their Hall of Fame in 2016. 
That same year, he became the assistant coach for the USA women's national team. The team won gold that year at the Rio Paralympics. Three golds in four Paralympic Games, and they claim the gold, and congratulations to them. There has been no better team here. Trooper was picked to be the head coach of the USA women's national team heading into the 2021 Tokyo Paralympics. As a coach, Trooper pushes all his players to their limits, even the younger generation, and he tests their commitment to the sport. At many points along the way, I considered quitting. As a kid, I just wanted to have fun. Once I was invited up to the varsity level, I felt a huge sense of community. My team works together towards a common goal. We're a force to be reckoned with. Trooper also works with young people who are playing sports for the first time in their lives. He's the coordinator with the Bay Area Outreach and Recreation Program. The program is about more than sports. It's a support network. Older players often give the younger players advice. They can help them through that process. They have scheduled surgeries. They have things that they have to go through on a regular basis that they know that when the next person on the team has to, to go through that, they're like, oh yeah, I had that last year. I had it a couple of years ago. The Bay Area Outreach and Recreation Program has helped me and so many other young athletes, but programs like this aren't common and wheelchair basketball is not accessible to everyone. Joshua Pate, a professor at James Madison University, studies disability sports and some of its barriers. He says the sport was first developed as a way to support veterans returning from World War II in England and the United States. It was all related to veterans and veteran status, which is phenomenal, right? Uh, it gives a great outlet um, tapping into a market that, or, or a demographic that certainly is searching for that you know, physical exertion. Now wheelchair basketball is considered one of the largest and most popular sports that disabled people can compete in. But the funding doesn't necessarily reflect the demand. Over the years, uh, I, I, you know, it's my opinion that disability sport has been couched only in that area. We see a pretty good level of funding going toward wounded warrior programs uh, or you know, injured veterans. Um, what we don't see is funding going toward athletes who were born with their disability or athletes who maybe were not veteran uh, status. And so um, along the way, that bec there's this becomes a separation between the two populations, even within disability. And I think that's one of the barriers that's holding the disability movement down is that the cerebral palsy community is not really talking to the, um, you know, the traumatic brain injury community, which is not talking to uh, the amputee community, which is not talking to the blind and visually impaired community. Uh, so it's, it, it becomes a, uh, a communication barrier in some ways. Wheelchair basketball requires a lot of traveling, and the wheelchairs you need to play can be up to tens of thousands of dollars. Even the Paralympic Games are struggling to get sponsors. Stigma around the sport is also part of the problem. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be on ESPN to make it sport. I think that's what our general population tends to see disability sport and athletes with disabilities and say, oh, how sweet. That's amazing that they're getting out and living their life. And it's this inspirational tone to the, what they're feeling. But not all sport can, has to be inspiring. Sometimes people with disabilities just want to be an athlete. Pate worked on a study with researchers at the University of Houston and the University of Denver to examine the idea of inspiration in adaptive sports. The study shows that athletes playing power soccer didn't want to be viewed as inspirational, but many of their family members did view them that way. So now in my own life, I live that every day too. Um, when I'm at the gym exercising, um, 
you know, it's usually once a month someone will come up and say, uh, they'll tap me on the shoulder, and I know it's coming. They'll say, you know, I just want to let you know that you are such an inspiration. I always respond with introducing myself to them and telling them my name because I don't want to be known as the person with the disability who's exercising at the gym. I want to be known as Josh who's exercising at the gym. This is something that I think resonates with a lot of people with disabilities. I would challenge our listeners to change their viewpoint of disability from inspiration to appreciation. Take my teammate Garnet Silver Hall, for example. He's an incredible player. He has a condition called arthrogryposis. That affects the movement of his arms and his legs. And he's been playing basketball since he was 10 years old. I always go back to my first nationals. This is like a pivotal time in my adaptive sports career. And it was the first time I'd been around so many people with disabilities. And it, I mean, it blew my mind, I think. Um, just hundreds and hundreds of people in situations, you know, relative to myself. Um, I think that just made me feel good. Garnet lives in Bolinas, a town in Marin County. His only option to practice there is a small blacktop. So he travels to Berkeley along with the rest of our team just to play. Another teammate travels three hours away from Gilroy. But Garnet says it's worth it. He's met people all over the country whose athletic abilities push him to be even better. And I got, and also I got to see the best athletes in the country in wheelchair basketball like and just the level they were at compared to me i was like whoa okay you know there's a lot there's a lot of work that can be done garnet has worked for many years to get to where he is now he was offered a scholarship to play for the university of arizona and several other colleges tried to recruit him his next goal is to one day play in the paralympics i'm just gonna have to keep working and advancing and you know ultimately a a spot on the Paralympic team would be amazing. That, I think that's always the goal. Our coach, Trooper Johnson, holds us to the same standard that he does for his Paralympic competitors. Six o'clock team meeting in Kentucky, you know, in a three-hour time difference. Then we know that they can get up for school if the, the reward is big enough and the reward is playing basketball. So now you have no excuse for not getting up to get on to school on time. And so... I think that the sports has an impact that's directly related into life that doesn't uh, get fully understood. Wheelchair basketball has been a driving force in my life for many years. These are values that I think are at the heart of every wheelchair basketball player. A willingness to strive to be the greatest athlete they can be. story was reported by Avery Dower. He's a high school student at Ruth Asawa School of the Arts in San Francisco. Avery's story is a reminder of how important it is to maintain organized activities that support all types of communities. When I was a high school debater, watching women who looked like me in positions of success motivated me to work harder. Finding communities is an essential antidote to loneliness. It's necessary to feel supported and that's something that many first-year college students, like me, need. Yet, because of remote learning, it's going to be harder to form relationships with other students. Zoom is not an adequate substitute for in-person interaction. The platform maintains an aura of formality, and relationships are hard to form through a screen. We're going to go to our panel of teenagers for more. 
We asked them to talk about finding their own sense of community in high school. Hi, my name is Zara Emeth and I'm from Fremont, California, and I'm an incoming first year at Ohlone Community College. I'm Maddie Johnson. I live in San Francisco and I'm going to be an incoming freshman at UC Berkeley. Hi, I'm Ava Richards. I live in Belmont, California, and I am a senior at Carmont High School. I have like kind of bad anxiety and so like meeting new people like really scares me and so my freshman year I like knew I wanted to be a part of something but I like couldn't bring myself to actually try to do it. My dad basically was like you have to join a single club and just stick with it just to see how it goes um, and so I decided to join um, the, the tech club. At least when I joined the club it was primarily like guys who are in the club because I feel like a lot of people feel like oh like it's technology that's not something that like a girl should really be a part of but like everyone is was so like welcoming in my club and it just made me want to keep doing it and now I'm the president which is really cool we all sort of go through the same sort of struggles I guess like during the musical we are all in the performing arts center from after school all the way until one in the morning every day for two weeks straight. I like cried a lot because it was like a lot of hard work and they're just the type of people that will really lift you up and build your confidence. Yeah I mean I think for me it really comes down to like the like big community group I feel a part of is um, team stronger than you think. And uh, it's like focused on healthy relationships and educating youth like all about prevention and it's very inclusive. It just felt very comforting to be able to be with people who were one like passionate about learning this topic and then also helping others. And then, I mean, I also found out about like teen dating violence because that was something I wasn't aware of too until I joined the group and realized how important it was. And I really appreciate to be able to have like a support system that is able to um, talk about this openly and support each other with whatever we're going through. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's hard for me to speak on community because that's something I really struggled with in high school. I felt like I wasn't part of something. At my school, I remember freshman year, I tried out for the school musical. I applied for student council. I also tried out for the lacrosse team. I didn't get accepted into any of those activities, so I felt like I had to create a space for myself to do something that both fit my interests and also connected me to the community because I didn't feel a connection because I wasn't able to participate in those organized things. So that's why I got an internship in the communications office initially at school. And through there, I was sort of able to build my community at Sacred Heart, but it was different than most kids' experiences because I felt like I was bonding a lot more with the teachers and the administration. I wish that my school had both been more, um, less competitive, let's say. Just like I came to my school, Oakland Tech, as the only person from my whole class in middle school um, coming in there by myself, so I didn't really know that many people that well. So I had to kind of like navigate by myself and I was like kind of intimidated too because I came from an all-girls school. So I was just trying to like see where I kind of fit in and I was noticing that like a lot of these students were a lot different than I was and it was just hard for me to find like a solid group of friends because I felt like 
I did what Maddie and Ava did where I tried to join activities and tried to kind of immerse myself into the community because I was like navigating by myself wasn't really working too well. So um, I joined the soccer team and I joined student government and I kind of just reached out to resources and um, I feel like that was something that helped me kind of get get like a piece of my community. Yeah, I'm in touch with one of my teachers from this year and she's talked about how hard it is for her to figure out how to foster community online and how my class was okay because we had the majority of the year in person. So finishing out the last quarter on Zoom wasn't too bad because we already all already had relationships with each other and with her. But she's trying to figure out how to bring that same sense of community to her classes now. And I'm a little worried for some of these huge classes that I have, like a 300-person math class. How am I going to be able to meet anybody and even just talk to my professor. I'll probably never be able to talk to my professor one-on-one, you know? I get worried about just feeling very disconnected as I sit behind my computer at home and having that lack of community. Having a community and feeling the sense of home is something everyone can appreciate. Community has begun to depend on more online spaces due to the current pandemic. But that feeling of community and support is still apparent online as well. We're going to wrap up today's episode with a commentary from a San Francisco high school student. In recent years, he's noticed the way his community in San Francisco has shifted. My name is Dwight Becerra. I go to Abraham Lincoln High School. Um, I'm a junior. Uh, gentrification is important to me because there was a lot of places that I used to go to when I was younger that aren't still around because of uh, new things being built and things being, I would say, quote-unquote, modernized. Uh, I don't think there were many uh, places you could get Peruvian food, like, by where I lived. There was, But there was only, like, one place that you could go to which made, like, authentic sort of stuff. Um, then after a while, I think maybe sometime in 2013, 2014, they closed their doors and they were turned into a restaurant called Limon, which sell, also sells Peruvian food. But it's not really that authentic and it's really overpriced. A thing I hear a lot sometimes is um, that America is a play is like a country of multiple different cultures brought together, and when things close down like that and turned into things that aren't really what is a true representation, it feels like you have this authentic thing, and they sort of change it into something that isn't really that. And I feel like gentrification, it, it can be used in a good way in order to clean up the streets in which we can get more homeless people homes or more shelters for people. And a lot of it is just the exact opposite, which is just closing places down and sort of rebuilding it as something else. And even so, we still have a big homeless problem. And it's not just in Dwight's hometown, San Francisco. In San Jose, where I live, gentrification is still evident. 
Rising housing prices have forced my teachers and neighbors to leave for cheaper neighborhoods, and I'm referring to middle-class individuals. For low-income residents, moving isn't even a choice. With increasing housing prices due to the influx of tech companies and their workers, eviction is becoming more and more inevitable. I also relate to Dwight's story. In Oakland, I'm seeing the increase in gentrification all around our neighborhood. It feels kind of sad to see old stores and shops loved by the community close down and become replaced with the blue bottle, for example. I am not only seeing the physical aspects of the community changing, but the demographics as well. Many Oakland residents are being pushed out of the neighborhoods due to the increase of housing prices. You've been listening to TBH, a podcast from KOW Public Radio. Thank you to all the teenagers who took part in producing this show. Holly J. McDee edited and taught along with Sarah Lye Sterland and Kristen McCandless. She also engineered the show with help from James Rollins and Gabe Graybin. Music was composed by Dawood Anthony. Our artwork was created by Awan Mance. Shireen Adel is the content manager and Ben Trefney is the executive director. This project was made possible with support from the Association for Continuing Education, the California Arts Council, and California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. In the next episode, we're talking about segregation in schools. We'll hear from my classmates at Oakland Tech. Oh my goodness, I hear this a lot. Oh, Victoria, you're so eloquent. What? Am I supposed to speak in Ave? Like, what do you want from me? Like, I can speak in Ave if I want to. It's called code switching, baby. You have, their their standards are so low that I'm just like, you're eloquent too, Karen. Race and education, next time on TVH. If you like what you're hearing, take a minute to give us a rating. If you really like what you're hearing, leave us a review. It'll help us reach a whole lot more people. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Hannah Nee. And I'm Cho Song Tenzin. Bye!